We hope you like this Resurrection Oakland Church podcast. Unauthorized use of any part of this copyrighted material for redistribution or duplication is not permitted without prior consent from Resurrection Oakland Church. To learn more about our church and its charity and mission work in and around Oakland, California, please visit our website at www.resoakland.com. A reading from John 20, 1-18. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to where they were staying. Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white, seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you are looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord, and she told them that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's take just a moment to pray together. Father, would you help us to believe this morning that none of us are in this room by accident? Help us to believe that we're here because you have brought us here, whether we are convinced of the things whether we are utterly unconvinced of the things that we've been singing, whether we find ourselves in this room this morning having once believed, trying to figure out if we could ever believe again, whether we find ourselves in this room the very first time, help us to believe that we're here because you brought us here. Come and speak to us now, we pray. You alone, 
You alone have the words of life. So speak through your word and by your spirit. Uh, when I was leaving church last Sunday, I walked outside the doors and parked uh, right outside of the church, actually, on this street, was a car. And uh, imagine that, a car parked right outside the street. And taped uh, one of the windows of that car was a note, and I, I just, this note, was, I loved this note. It was so human, so real, so honest, so I, I wanted to share it with you. And the note, I took a picture of it, actually. Uh, and the note says, please leave my car alone. There's nothing worth value in here. And I'm already in debt from paying over $2,000 to fix damages to my car from theft on this street. If you're going to rob someone, please find a different car. Good Samaritan. Please find a different car that looks like they can afford it. Please and hopefully thank you. And I read this note and I had two thoughts. My first thought was, I better go put a note like this in my car because I'm parked like right behind this guy. What if somebody does what he's asking them to do? My second thought was, what a picture of life. What a picture of life. Most of us in this room have been where this person is. And I don't just mean that we've had our cars broken into. Although, if you've lived in Oakland for any length of time, it has happened to you. You, you, know, you have not truly lived in this city until your car has been smashed. Uh, but when I say that most of us are like this person, I'm not talking about our cars. I'm actually talking about something much bigger. I'm talking about our lives. Uh, this note is a picture of life. You can, you can hear the exhaustion. Uh, you, can, you can feel the frustration. Uh, you, can, you can feel the longing for relief, the, the, the sense that, you know, this is too much and I don't know if I can take much more. Have you ever felt that? Maybe you are feeling that right now. Uh, if it is true that you've never lived in Oakland until your car window has been smashed, it is also true that you have not lived in this world long enough until your hopes and your dreams have been smashed, until you've felt this. In fact, there's this verse in Romans chapter 8 that says the whole creation is longing for relief, that it is groaning that it is, it is longing for something good to break through all of the pain and the difficulty and the frustration. And what, friends, here is some good news for you this morning. What we're looking at this morning is the day that something did break through. The moment in history where God did something decisive about all of our groaning and all of our smashed hopes and all of our disappointments and all of our pain and sorrow. And he did it in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is so much good news for you and me in this passage this morning. I want to just look at three things that the resurrection means. It means that Easter is more rational than you think. 
It means that God is more gracious than you imagine. And it means that the future is more wonderful than you could ever hope. Okay, so first, Easter is more rational than you think. Christianity, it either stands or falls based upon the singular event of the resurrection. Christians believe that Jesus was raised from the dead bodily, historically, physically, in real space, and in real time. We believe that today, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, is a certain man of a certain height and a certain weight and a certain name, and his name is Jesus. We believe that Jesus is really truly alive. And some of you hear that this morning and you want to shout amen, but you feel like you can't because you're in a Presbyterian church. And I want to tell you something. This is a church where you can shout amen. Okay. Amen. All right. Others of you hear that this morning and you think, how could any rational person believe this? That's like a fairy tale. You know, to believe something like that, you have to stop thinking. And what I want to suggest to you this morning is that the resurrection actually demands not that you turn your brain off, but that you turn it on. Not that you stop thinking, but that you actually start thinking. That is what everyone in this text is doing. Let me show you. Look at Mary in verse 1. It says, early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put them. Now think about this. Jesus has been telling everybody for the last three years, hey, let me let you in on a little secret. I'm gonna die. Three days later, I'm gonna rise. Mary doesn't show up at this tomb and go, he did it. She goes to the other disciples and she says, we don't know who took the body. Mary thinks, she thinks Jesus is dead. Why does Mary think Jesus is dead? Because she is thinking. See, modern people, we know that dead people stay dead. You know who else knew that? People in the first century. That's like always been a thing, okay? <laughs> That is not a new thing. She's thinking. All right, look at Peter. In verse 6, it says that when he got to the tomb, he went straight into the tomb and he saw, very key word there, he saw the strips of linen that had been wrapped around Jesus' body as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. It says that he saw the grave clothes. And the word that John, the writer, uses here for the word saw is not the normal, normal Greek word for to see. It's, it's not the normal Greek word is blepo. John uses a word that we're actually, a very different word, a distinctive word, one that we're familiar with. It's the Greek word theo. It's where we get our theorize or theory from. It means to observe something intently in order to find an explanation. What is Peter doing? He is thinking. He is looking at the evidence. No one is just turning their brain off in this passage. No one is just closing their eyes and wishing are. That is not Christian faith, friends. Christian faith is not turning off your brain. It is turning it on. And if you ever want to deal 
credibly with the claims of the resurrection, you need to consider the evidence. And you say, well, okay, they were there. You know, they, they had all sorts of evidence to look at, but what do, what do we have to look at? Well, the answer is we have a lot. Too much to talk about in today's service because we've got food trucks waiting for you outside. Some of you have already looked at these little cards and decided what you're going to eat. That's what you're thinking about right now. But let me give you, can I give you a little bit of, a little bit of evidence this morning? This is important. Just a little bit. Here, here's, here's one. A couple things. First, all four Gospels, all four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which record the life, the teachings, the death, the ministry, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all four of them have women as the very first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They're the first ones to see him. Now, why does that matter? It matters because in the first century, women were of such low social status that their testimony, not only was it not credible in court, but it was not admissible in court. Uh, Celsus, who was a second century Greek philosopher, he hated Christianity. He was kind of out to disprove it. He wrote several books to try and do that. And in one of his books, he wrote this. He said, talking about women as the first eyewitnesses, he says, how can anyone expect rational men to listen to the testimony of a hysterical female? This brother would not have lasted long in today's world. But that was the culture that, amen. First one. Yes, we have come a long way and we have farther to go. And some of you think that the Bible is very misogynistic, but I want you to know that Jesus was a revolutionary. Women were a key part of his ministry. More to go. So, amen to that. Uh, but that was the culture then, okay? So, I want you to think about this. Having women as the first eyewitnesses did nothing. It did nothing to help your claim. It would have been far more advantageous to put men as the first eyewitnesses. And so the question that historians have been asking for centuries is, why would you, why would you put women there first? You know what the answer that they've all come up with is? Because that's what happened. That's what happened. Here, here's a second piece of evidence. The empty tomb. We see this empty in this passage, you know, throughout history, whenever uh, a major religious leader of, of, who's founded any major world religion, whenever they have died, you know what's happened to their places of burial? Their followers commemorate them. They become like a shrine, like a memorial. So, for example, every year, millions of people flock to Muhammad's tomb at the Green Dome in Medina. We know exactly where he's buried. Same is true with Confucius. But that is not the case with Jesus. Why is that not the case? See, people speculate where they think the tomb was. You can go to Israel and they say, we think it's here, we're not sure. But nobody's sure. Why is that? You know why? It's because of the resurrection. Jesus' followers stopped going to the tomb. They didn't need to commemorate him. They didn't need a memorial. They didn't need a shrine. When Jesus walked out of that tomb, it became just another tomb, and it was a forgotten tomb. Here's one last one for you. 
Uh, and this is an important one because some of you are thinking, you know, this is circular reasoning. You know, you're using the Bible to prove the Bible. You're talking about things that this text talks about. The women there first. The empty tomb. Okay, let's talk about history. Let's talk about uh, what happened in the first century when Christianity exploded onto the scene virtually overnight. Um, in 1962, MIT professor Thomas Kuhn, he wrote a book called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And uh, this, is, this was listed as one of the most uh, 100 most influential books of the 20th century. And what's interesting about this book is it's where we get the term paradigm shift. You ever use that term? That's where it comes from. It comes from this book. And uh, here's what Kuhn says in his book. He says, the way that science works is it's never neutral. That what happens is you develop a theory and then you do experiments to confirm your theory. And any result that doesn't fit your theory gets tossed out and attributed to uncontrollable variables that give you a false result. And so what happens? Well, scientists work on and they believe in these paradigms until you get results that are inconsistent with your paradigm so many times that you eventually have to let go of your initial theory and you get a whole new theory, a whole new grid for processing what might be true. And when that happens, it's called a paradigm shift. But here's what's interesting. Kuhn says that paradigm shifts take a really long time. They don't happen overnight. He says that any significant uh, scientific study that challenges what is already accepted Ne typically never gets to see the fruit of its labor. It's criticized and it's dismissed and it's typically considered an outlier. And sometimes it takes two to three generations of scientists to appreciate the initial work before it's accepted. It is a slow turn, okay? And that is how we come to conclusions about things that are true. Now I want you to compare what he's talking about with what happened in the first century. It was a paradigm shift unlike the world had ever seen before and it's never seen since. That virtually overnight, you had hundreds of Jewish people who believed that Jesus rose from the dead. And you say, well, yeah, but you know, they were, ancient people believed in that kind of stuff. No, they did not. And in fact, Jewish people were the least likely to believe in it. Some Jewish people believed in a resurrection for all of the righteous people that would happen at the very end of history, but nobody had any categories for a single man, a single human, who had raised from the dead in the middle of history. But virtually overnight that changed for them. And not only that, but no Jewish person believed that any human being could be God. Listen, to them, God was so holy he was so other that you couldn't even say his name. That when you wrote it out, you skipped letters. They did not believe that it, no human being could be God until literally overnight, hundreds and then very quickly thousands of people started worshiping a human being as God. Now what happened? I'll tell you what happened. The resurrection happened. And if you don't believe that, then I want to ask you a question. 
What do you believe? How do you explain what happened in human history in the first century? What's, what plausible explanation do you come up with? You've got to do business with this. Easter is far more rational than you think. All right, here's the second thing that this passage teaches us is that God is more gracious than you can imagine. God is more gracious than you can imagine. I once heard a comedian say, uh, they said, all religions are the same. That all religions are basically guilt. They just have different holidays. <laughs> and some of you think that's, that's what religion is. It's all about guilt and making you feel like a worse person. But I want you to know something this morning, that Easter is what sets Christianity apart. The resurrection is what makes Christianity uniquely not a religion of guilt, but one of grace. And we see that in this passage, both in who Jesus comes to and how he comes to them. Who does he come to in this passage? He comes to Mary. Who is this Mary? There are a lot of Marys in the New Testament. Who is this Mary? This is not Jesus' mother Mary. This is Mary Magdalene. We learn about her in Luke chapter 8, that she has seven demons inside of her, and Jesus heals her. And regardless of, of, of kind of what you want to make of that and what you want to do with that, here's what that tells us about her story. It tells us that this is a woman whose life was filled with pain and trauma. It tells us that she was a social and a moral outcast. It tells us that she was probably poor and homeless. It tells us that she was not at the top of society, but that she was at the very, very bottom. And you see, Jesus comes to her. And I want you to notice this. He comes to her first. She's the first one. Why does he come to her first? I mean, she's the, think about this. She's the very first Christian, in a sense. What is a Christian? A Christian is someone who believes that Jesus rose, that Jesus is, is God, and that he rose from the dead. She is the only person believing these things right now. She is the very first Christian. Why does he come to her first? Here's the answer. To show her and us just how gracious he is. That he does not come to people who think that they have it all together. He comes to people who know that they don't. He does not come to people who are moral and righteous, but he comes to those who know that they aren't. We see the grace of Jesus in who he comes to, but look how he comes to her. And I love this. It was so, it was so quick and so subtle, I bet you missed it when we were reading it. He comes to her in one word. Verse 16. Mary. He calls her by her name. And I want, you know, if you really read the passage, this is the moment where her life changes. She realizes who he is and she grabs a hold of him. Her world is transformed when he calls her by her name. And one, one commentator says, he says, this is Jesus' shortest sermon in all the Gospels. He, he says, this one word, Mary's own name, spoken by the most significant person she had ever known, changed her whole life. You know, there's a lot of ways to say someone's name. 
As a kid, you always knew you were in trouble when your parents called you by your whole name. Brent, William, Webster, I heard that a lot as a kid growing up. I knew it was serious business then. Imagine how many different ways Mary had heard her name called over the course of her life. People had said it with scorn, with shame, condemning her, judging her, dismissing her, looking down on her. But friends, there was something so unique about the way that Jesus said her name that it changed her life. And you know what it was? It was the tone of grace. William Guthrie, who was a 17th century pastor, he said this, he said, the Lord only said her name, but he said it in such a way that it filled her soul so she no longer doubted she was his. She no longer doubted she was his. You know, only Christianity says that God can say your name like this. Only the gospel says that God can talk to you like this in such a way that it actually fills you with security and confidence and assurance so that you no longer doubt that you are his. So every other religion says your relationship with God It is based on what you do, a record of righteousness or moral or spiritual attainment that you give to God, which you know what that means? It means that you are always wondering if you've done enough and you are always doubting if you are his. But you see, Christianity offers you a relationship with God that is not based on what you do. It is based on what Jesus has done for you in his life and in his death and in his resurrection. You can know that you are his. You can know. Because it's not dependent on anything that you do. And this is why Christianity is totally unique. It's unlike anything else. The founder of no other religion can call your name like this. In fact, they can't call your name at all. Buddha is dead. Muhammad is dead. Moses is dead, and no one says that they're alive, not even their followers. But you know what the resurrection says? Jesus is alive. And he can call your name. And he always does it by grace. Here's the last thing this morning. The resurrection means that the future is more wonderful than you could ever hope. So there's a lot of emphasis in this passage on Mary's tears. She cries when she gets to the empty tomb. She cries in front of the angels. And then she cries in front of Jesus when she thinks that he's the gardener. Now, why is she crying? Uh, The reason that she's crying is because when she comes to the empty tomb on Easter morning, She's not just grieving the loss of her friend. She is grieving the loss of hope. When Jesus died, her hope died. She knew that if death was the end for him, then that meant that death was the end for her. Let me put it to you this way. Mary is crying because she's looking at the world without a resurrection. See, and if you are at all honest you will do the same. 
Friends, if you're here this morning and you are, you're skeptical of the resurrection, you're not convinced, you do not believe in God, you think that this world is all that there is, and that when we die, it's just kind of game over. You, you know, if that's where you are, the only rational response is despair. It's the only one. I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter how healthy you are or how beautiful you are or how accomplished or successful you are. It doesn't matter how great your marriage is or how great your family is. If there is no resurrection, then there is one thing that you can count on. And that is this. Death is going to take all of those things from you. Every single thing. It's going to take your money. It's going to take your health. It's going to take your spouse and your friends and every single loved one that you had. And it's going to take you. And if, if, there is, if that is your future, then you cannot have any rational hope or joy in the present. All you can do is what Mary does. All you can do is weep. And look, I know a lot of people in this room come into this room this morning weeping. Weeping because our bodies are broken. Some of you are desperately sick. Weeping because our minds are broken. Some of you are struggling deeply with mental health. Weeping because our relationships are broken. Weeping because our our marriages are broken. Weeping because our world is broken. Structures of justice and equity are broken. And so you're here this morning and you're wondering, is there any hope in the midst of the brokenness and in the midst of my tears? And the resurrection says, yes, yes. Look at the very first words that Jesus says to Mary. He says in verse 15, Woman, why are you crying? You need to hear the tone of that. Remember the tone of grace? It's always how Jesus talks to you. Jesus is not being critical of her tears. What he's doing is he's telling Mary that he's come to do something about her tears. And he's telling us the same thing. And the reason that we know this is because in Revelation chapter 21, it says that because of the resurrection, there is a day that is coming where God is going to wipe every tear away and he is going to make all things new. Have you ever had someone wipe your tears away? My dad died a little over three years ago. And he had been sick for a long time, but we were not expecting it. It was very sudden. I I did not get a chance to say goodbye to him. So we got the call, and the next day we got on a plane to fly all the way across the country. Longest flight I've ever been on in my life. We landed late that night. The next morning we woke up and we went to the funeral home. And we we walked in, it was just our family. We walked in 
And I walked up to my dad's casket. And it was open. And I just collapsed on top of it. Sobbing. Weeping. And I will never forget my wife Katie just standing next to me the whole time, wiping tears away. That was a beautiful moment, but I want you to know something. Those tears have come back. They haven't fully gone away. You see, but the resurrection says that there is a day that is coming where they will. And it is a day where God is going to make the world new and he is going to set everything to right. This is a Christian hope. That there will be no more injustice. There will be no more oppression. There will be no more hungry or homeless people. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more cancer. There will be no more dementia. There will be no more sadness. There will be no more death. There will be no more saying goodbye to people that we love. Don't you long for that world? Of course you long for that world. You know what Christianity says? It says that the reason you long for that world is because you were made for that world. And the resurrection says that it's coming and that you can be a part of it. And if the question you're asking this morning is how, how can I be a part of it? The answer is at this table. Who does Jesus invite to this table? He invites the Marys of the world. He does not invite people who think that they have it all together. He invites those who know that they don't. He doesn't invite people who've been good enough or tried hard enough. He invites people who know that they never could. It is the table of grace. It's the table of grace. And all you need to come to this table is need. See, anyone can come to this table. All you need is need. And if you have that, then you can be like Mary. You can know that you're his, and you can hear him call your name. And if you've never heard God call your name, you can hear him call it today. It changed Mary's life. It has changed the lives of lots of people in this room. It has changed my life. And it has changed countless lives throughout history. And it can change your life. No matter who you are. No matter what you have done. God's grace can crash into your life today. And you can know the risen Savior. You can meet Him. You can receive Him. And if you've never done that, then the invitation for you today is to do that. On the night in which He was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread. And after He'd given thanks, He broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he blessed it, saying, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Apostle Paul tells us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death 
until he comes again and the promise of this table and of the resurrection is that he indeed will come again. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks for the resurrection that death could not hold your son down. That he defeated the grave and that he has made a way for us to know you and to come to this table irrespective of our own past and lives but simply because of all that he has done for us. Would you help us to believe that this morning as we come to this table? Some of us, even for the very first time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.